You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, we, we, we are now embarking on a, a new section in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, you may remember that, that the first two chapters, we saw that the nation of Israel was being led by, by Eli the priest. And then chapter 3, until currently, uh, we see that, that the nation of Israel was then being led by, by the prophet Samuel. But now we've come to a transition, a transition in the book, because at this point, we go from a prophet to a politician. Because you remember, uh, the, the people, they no longer wanted God to rule over them. They wanted a politician. They wanted a king to rule over them. Now, speaking of politicians, uh, someone once said that, that politics consists of a donkey and an elephant and a whole lot of bull. <laughs> well, as we look now at the first 10 verses of chapter 9, we're going to see that while the nation is looking for, for a king, meanwhile, Saul, who becomes the first king, is looking for a bunch of donkeys. And so, verse 1, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekarat, the son of Apia, uh, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And as he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Saul, uh, Saul uh, he, he, he did not find them. And as they passed through the land of, of, of Saalim, they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man held in high honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there, and perhaps he can tell us the way to go. Then Saul said to the servant, But if, if we go, what can we bring the man? For, for, our, for our bread and our sack is gone, and, and, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, and he said, Here, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now, formerly in Israel, when, when a man went to inquire of God, he, he, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, as we dive into this, let's, let's remember, last time back in chapter 8, what we saw was, was that the people of Israel, now, by the way, that name, Israel, Israel, we saw last time means governed by God. And so the very people who were actually named governed by God no longer wanted to be governed by God. Uh, they, they come to Samuel and they say, you know what? We, we no longer want uh, uh, to be a nation that's led by a prophet. We want to be a non-profit organization. Now, of course, this, this you know, kind of broke Samuel's heart when he heard it. Uh, and yet God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, listen, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And nevertheless, God gives them what they're asking for. God's like, okay, fine. You want to reject me? You want to turn your backs against me? You, you, you don't want me to lead you anymore? You want a king to lead you? Fine, I'll give you what you're asking for, but here's a cautionary warning. The warning is be careful what you ask for because you're probably going to get it. And now they get it. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's been well said. Uh, in fact, it was William Penn who said, if we're not willing to be governed by God, then we should be, we should be ruled by tyrants. That's the lesson that Israel's about to learn. 
And so now in this passage, we meet the man who had become the first king of Israel. And we kind of get his biography, kind of get his background. It says, first of all, he was a man of Benjamin, meaning that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So right away, we discover, we get a clue that Saul was not God's choice to be king for Israel. He was not God's choice to be the king of Israel. How do we know that? Well, because way back in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesies. And and in Genesis 49, verse 10, it says, the scepter, that would be the right to rule as king, the scepter would not depart from Judah. And so what we see is, is is that God's choice to be king, whoever God would choose to lead the nation of Israel, is going to come from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Benjamin. So God's choice would come from Judah. So Saul was not God's choice, he was the people's choice. And so now we see in this passage, Saul goes out looking for his father's lost donkeys. And and, and as we read the story, it's almost like we're reading his LinkedIn profile, kind of getting his, his qualifications for the job. And so qualification number one is that he came from money. You know, verse one says that his father was a man of wealth, the end of verse one. His father was a man of wealth. Now, by the way, his father, Kish, probably had had several flocks of sheep. Uh, Not just one flock, but probably several flocks. Now, how do we know that? Well, because in those days, donkeys were were the guardian animal for sheep folds. (laughs) Could you imagine having a a guard donkey? A little sign on your fence that says, beware of donkey. You know, maybe it's a talking donkey. Somebody breaks in and he's all like, you know, I told you you should not be breaking into this house. <laughs> you know, they, they were the guardians. Now, now, what that meant was the more donkeys you had, the more flocks you owned. And so the fact that, that, that Kish, Saul's father, had several donkeys and several servants implies not only was he wealthy, but he's probably more like a rancher. He wasn't a shepherd, he was a rancher who had several flocks and had several shepherds working for him. And so, and so he, he's, he's this man of great wealth. And so what this tells us is that Saul was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. That's qualification number one. Qualification number two is that we also see that basically Saul was voted uh, as, as People Magazine's sexiest man in Israel. We, you know, verse, verse two, it says he was a handsome young man. It says there was not a, a, a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And then it goes on. It says from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so what we see here is that, is that not only did, did he come from money, not only did, was, was he a man of great wealth, but on top of that, he was tall, dark, and handsome. His LinkedIn profile starting to sound like his Tinder profile. But Israel should have just swiped right. Now, it's interesting. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, when, when man chooses a leader to follow, inevitably, we end up choosing celebrity over integrity. We end up choosing someone who, who looks good walking down the, the red carpet at the Met Gala, not someone who's actually walking with God. That was King Saul. That was Saul. He looked good on the outside, but something was wrong on the inside. 
like how Bible commentator J. Sidlow Baxter put it when he said, in some ways he was very big and in other ways very little. In some ways he was commandingly handsome and in others decidedly ugly. All in one, a giant and a dwarf, a hero and a renegade, he began so promisingly and yet deteriorated so dismally. But as we pick it up in verse 11, down to the end, we see that he started well. He had a strong start. So now we look at Saul's strong start, verse 11. And as they went up to the hill, uh, to the city, they met the young women coming out to draw water. And they said to him, is the seer here? And they answered and said, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He, he, he's come here now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today at the high place. As, as soon as he enters the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes since, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and, and, and as they were going and entering into the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, saying, Tomorrow, at about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the, in the gate and said to him, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys that were lost for three, uh, three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found." And, and for whom is all that is desirable in all of Israel? Is it not for you and your father's house? And, and Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of all of Israel? And, and is not my clan the humblest of all of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man, and he brought them into the hall and gave them a great place at the head of those who, who had been invited. There were about 30 persons. And, and, and Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it, and he set it before uh, them. I'm sorry, he set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what, what is kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guest. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down and slept. Then at, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you away on your way. So Saul arose, he and Samuel went out to the street. And as they were going out to the outskirts of the city, Samuel told Saul, he said, tell the servant to go on and pass before us. And when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So there's a lot there. But first of all, you know, uh, God tells Samuel that, that, that Saul is going to be the first king of Israel. But now when Sam, Samuel tells Saul that he's going to be the king, Saul can't believe what he's hearing. In fact, he responds and he says, am I not a, a Benjamite, the smallest, the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan like the smallest of all of the clans within the tribe of Benjamin? I'm like the last guy anybody should choose. 
You know, listen, on the surface, this looks good. I mean, on the surface, Saul seems humble. But here's the problem. The problem is that he started humble, but he doesn't stay that way. In fact, it happens very quickly. Things kind of start to go to his head. Abraham Lincoln and once said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. You know, that happens, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you, you get a position of power. You get a position of leadership, a position of authority. You know, maybe you came from nothing. You were just a, a humble, hardworking man of the people, but then you start to experience a little success. It starts to go to your head, you know, and, and you start to enjoy the perks that come with the position. And little by little, you forget where you came from. That's the story of Saul. And unfortunately, I've seen that story lived out in the lives of many, even many in the ministry. In fact, years ago, probably 15, maybe 20 years ago, uh, at the Senior Pastors Conference in Southern California for, for Calvary Chapel pastors, uh, there was a couple of guys there who, who pastor megachurches. And these guys, as far as I know, they, they, they barely made it through high school. And, and, and I don't think either one of them went, went to college. But somehow, because of the success of their churches, uh, there were some universities that granted them honorary doctorate degrees. Never went to college, but now they're honorary doctorate degrees. Well, now with that, you know, it kind of went to the head a little bit. In fact, they started telling people, you know, call me Dr. Such and Such, Dr. So-and-so. It's an honorary degree. It's like, a, you know, the, the little toy ring you get in the back, a box of Cracker Jacks. It's not a real ring. <laughs> so, you know, they're, uh, Dr. So-and-so, well, this year at the conference, these guys show up, both of them, in, in, in brand new luxury sports cars. I think one was like a Porsche, the other one was like a Corvette or some Ferrari, I don't know, but these luxury cars. And everybody's just like, ooh, and, and ah, and this is so amazing. And you know, look at these, these awesome cars. Now, by the way, I should point out that, that these cars, they, they didn't come from the ministry. It wasn't because they were being paid these crazy paychecks. As far as I know, these guys had, had received royalties for, for other kinds of work, like writing books or music or whatever it was, but, but it wasn't like a misuse of funds. But, you know, nevertheless, uh, during the session, evidently Pastor Chuck Smith uh, wasn't all that excited about the cars. So much so that during one of the sessions, he rebuked both of these guys by name. <laughs> just, just called them out and, 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 and rebuked them because they had forgotten where they came from. They had forgotten how small they really were. And he pointed out that, you know, it just kind of gives the body of Christ a, a black eye, especially in these days where there's, where there's all these scandals involving pastors and money. And, and on the surface, somebody looks at this and they don't know where that came from. It just gives the wrong impression. <laughs> well, the next year for the conference, these guys, they, when they showed up, they did not show up in their luxury sports cars. In fact, they showed up in rental cars, like, like a Corolla and like a, like a Geo Storm or something. Like, like basically a roller skate with a motor. <laughs> so here's Saul. Saul, he starts small. He starts humble. He, he has a strong start, but he doesn't, as we study his life, he doesn't finish that way. In fact, towards the end of his life, uh, you could kind of sum up, in fact, he kind of sums up his own autobiography by saying these words in 1 Samuel 26, verse 21. He says, Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. It's like his own summary of his life. And by the way, it's interesting. You know, I keep saying that, 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 that Saul was the people's choice to be king, not God's choice to be king. But as we read this story, it does seem like God was involved in the choosing process, right? He's the people's choice, but, but at the same time, it seems like that God's involved in the choosing. 
We must never forget that Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Who appointed them? God. You know what this means. What, what this means is, is that not only are, are, are the good leaders and the godly leaders and, 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 and the good politicians and godly politicians, if there's a such thing, but not only do the good ones come from the hand of God, but guess what? So do the evil ones. So do the wicked ones. And so, yeah, King David came from the hand of God, but guess what? So did King Saul. In fact, for that matter, so did Nero, so did Nebuchadnezzar, so did Pharaoh. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, we get the leaders we deserve. So you know what? Sometimes maybe, maybe one leader is raised up, and, and, and it's a sign of God's blessing on the people. But then again, maybe one leader's raised up and it's a sign of God's judgment on the people. And so sometimes, you know, we get all riled up and, and, and we're all like, you know what? I don't think God wants me to support such an ungodly government. You know, a government that wants to legalize what God condemns. Listen, there's some truth in that. Listen, especially in, in the form of government we have, I mean, we're a part of the process. We do have the ability uh, to, to, to empower those who stand for God. So if you know there's a leader who actually has a heart for God and serves God and stands for God, then by all means, we should be empowering somebody like that. But we must never forget that Romans 13 teaches that all governments, even the ungodly ones, are established and appointed by God. You see, we tend to think that, that one party is like God's party and the other party is the devil's party. But I think Will Rogers hit it on the head years ago, decades ago, when he said, the more you read about politics, the more you must admit that each party is worse than the other. <laughs> and so, yeah, Saul was the people's choice, but God allowed it. God raised him up. Why? Well, because he's giving the people a sign. He's giving the people a, a warning. What's the warning? The warning is, be careful what you ask for, because you might get it. So they're asking for a king. But you know what? What they're asking for may not be what they think they're going to get. And so now as we look at the first 16 verses of chapter 10, we now look at Saul's anointing and his confirmation. So in verse 1 it says, <clears throat> Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be the prince over his heritage. And when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkey, uh, I'm sorry, the donkeys that, that you went out to seek have been found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys, and he's anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go up from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying a young goats, other carrying loaves of bread, and, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you, and they will give you two loaves of bread. And you shall accept them from their hand. And after that you will come to, to Gebeath Elohim, where there will be a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as, as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, lyre before them, prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. 
Now, when these signs meet you, do as, you, as, as your hands find to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me at Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you to show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gebeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how, how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to, to one another, what, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A, a man uh, of the place answered and said, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, saying, Is Saul also among the, proverb, uh, the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they, could, they, they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And then Saul's uncle said, well, please tell me what, what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. <clears throat> so this starts off with an anointing. Samuel anoints Saul, and then he gives him three signs. Now, by the way, we, we know that, that the oil used from this, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 40, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 40, they, they, they would have used olive oil to anoint a king or to anoint the Levites or to anoint a priest, to anoint someone for service, you would use olive oil. Now, by the way, uh, other kingdoms, the pagan kingdom around them, they would do uh, pretty much the same thing. They too would anoint the new king with oil. But there was a difference. The difference was that they would use animal oil. You know, they would offer a sacrifice and kind of melt down the fat and, you know, kind of think of like a, like a, like a grease pit at Burger King or something, just kind of digging your hand in all that sludge and just smearing the guy with it. Gross, right? That's how they would anoint their king. Now, why? Well, because they believed that the spirit of the animal stayed in the fat of the animal. The spirit of the animal stayed in the fat of the animal. And so therefore, they believe when they melted that down and then smeared it on you, uh, they, they were now empowering their new king with the spirit and the strength of that animal. So, you know, if, they, if, if, you know, if the pagans sacrificed a bull, they would then take the, the, the fat of it, the oil, the, the, the grease from it, and then, and then smear it on their new king, believing that that king would rule with the strength and the power of a bull. Now, as he said, the people of Israel used olive oil. Now, throughout the scriptures, olive oil is used as a symbol to remind you of the Holy Spirit. So remind you of the Holy Spirit. So an anointing someone with, with, with olive oil was a way of saying, you know what? You need to remember the Holy Spirit. You need to remember that, that you can't do this job in your own power. You can't do this job in your own ability. The only way you're going to actually pull this off, the only way you're going to be able to perform this job is with his help, with the Holy Spirit empowering you. And so with that, Saul now, I'm sorry, Samuel now gives Saul three signs to confirm that this really was a word from God. Sign number one, that, that as he's going, two men from Rachel's tomb would be coming to him and they would say, you know what, the donkeys you're looking for, they've been found. Sign number two, uh, three men coming from the Oka Tabor, offering sacrifices, and, and they offer him two loaves of bread. And then sign number three would be that there'd be a group of prophets when they get by a garrison of Philistines. And this group of prophets, when Saul meets him, he's going to join in and start prophesying as well. And one by one, uh, each of these signs is fulfilled exactly the way Samuel said they would be. 
Now, uh, Dr. Hiros, who is an astrophysicist and also the president of, a, of an apologetics ministry called Reasons to Believe, pointed out and said, the probability of these events happening in the exact sequence as Samuel predicted would be one in eight million. One in eight million, and yet they happened to a T exactly the way Samuel predicted. Not only that, but we notice it says that God gave him another heart. Some translations might say a different heart. But like the way J. Vernon McGee in his commentary put it, he says, it says that he was given another heart, not a new heart. You see, this was not what we would call a born-again experience. In fact, we notice that, that it says that the Spirit of God came upon him, not in him. Now, we know in the New Testament that, that when, when, when you give your life to Jesus, when, when, when you accept Christ in your life, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we know that, 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 that in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. You are filled with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit now lives in you, not just upon you, but in you. This wasn't necessarily like a born-again experience. This was an empowering experience. This is the Holy Spirit empowering him to do what he's being called to do. Now we notice, however, that, that Saul's anointing was, 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 was private. When Samuel anointed him, there were no witnesses. This was, this was private. This was one-on-one. -on -one. It hadn't gone public yet, but now as we pick it up in verse 17 to the end, now it goes public as, as, as Samuel declares the terms of kingship. Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together uh, to the Lord at Mitzvah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord of God uh, to, uh, of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the, of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought up the tribes of, of Israel <clears throat> near the tribe of Benjamin, and it was taken by Lot. And then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites were taken by Lot. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found, so they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a, a, a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Now picture this. The tallest man in all of Israel is trying to hide out in a stack of Samsonites. <laughs> so verse 23 says, then they ran and they took him from there. It, 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 when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And, and Samuel said to the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. And Saul also went to his home at Gebeah. And with him went the men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? How can this pretty boy save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So now we see that, that you know, this, this is the kind of, not the coordination quite yet, but it's kind of a public recognition. And in this public moment, it starts off with a little speech by, by, by Samuel saying in verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses and you've said to him, set a king over us. 
And so Samuel is making it very, very clear that the only reason that they're getting a king in the first place was because they had rejected God. This was an act of treason. It was an act of rebellion, an act of rejection. Again, now this is a little crass, but I like the way J. Vernon McGee put it in his commentary. McGee says, Saul was out looking for the asses of his father, and the asses of Israel were looking for a king. (laughs) And by the way, God saw this day coming. This didn't surprise God. He knew this day was going to come. In fact, he knew from the very beginning that this day was going to come. How do I know that? Well, because hundreds and hundreds of years long before this, all the way back in the days of Moses, God talked about it. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, God says, When you come to the land which which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it to dwell in it, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And now hundreds of years later, that's exactly what they said. All the other nations have a king. We want to be like everybody else. They have a king. We want to have a king. God saw it coming. Now the rest of Deuteronomy 17, and I'll just paraphrase, but the rest of it goes on where where God basically says, you know what, I'll, I'll allow you to have your king, but on these terms. And here's the terms. Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us term number one was that the king shall not multiply horses for himself. Kind of modern day vernacular would be like, you know, don't, don't, don't like, you know, build your, your car collection. In other words, don't use taxpayer money to, to build up this, this car collection, this, this status symbol of, of how far you've come in life. And then, and then uh, term number two, he's, he goes on to say, not only should you not uh, build up, you know, uh, horses for yourself, he says, nor multiply wives for yourself. So they weren't to have trophy horses or trophy cars, if you would, and they were not to have a collection of trophy wives either. And then term number three would be Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, where where it says, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. Now, years ago, uh, Billy Graham at the Cove was teaching young men how to, how, to, how to go into the ministry and things to watch out for. And he says, you know, there's three things in the ministry you need to avoid. Girls, gold, and glory. That's the warning of Deuteronomy chapter 17. And then as Deuteronomy 17 continues, God is basically saying, you know what? As long as your king obeys these terms then, and, and stays faithful to me, then you know what? I will bless his reign, I'll bless the people, and I'll bless the land. And by the way, I believe that was what Samuel was reading in verse 25. Look at verse 25. When it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. I believe those rights and duties came from Deuteronomy 17. He was reading this passage. Now here's how Deuteronomy 17 concludes. It says in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, it says, And when he sits on the throne as king, he, he, he must copy for himself this body of instructions on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He must always keep a copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he may learn to fear the Lord as God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he was above his fellow citizens. And it will also prevent him from turning away from these commands, even in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his, and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. 
And so the king is being told that to, to read this daily, to read these terms, to read Deuteronomy, to read the word of God daily. So as we mentioned, in the beginning at least, Saul started well. I mean, you know, he starts out humble. I mean, we, we, we meet him and he's hiding in the luggage. In other words, he wasn't campaigning for this. He wasn't pushing for this. He was hiding from it. He might have started well, but he finished, as we mentioned, poorly. I mean, in the beginning, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, but at, towards the end of his life, he, he's afflicted by an evil spirit that comes upon him. And so, little by little, it seems that Saul had strayed from the terms of kingship listed here in Deuteronomy 17. And again, he was told that, that if he would read these daily, if he would, he would seek these daily, they would keep him from falling away. But unfortunately, Saul fell away. And it didn't happen very slowly. It happened kind of quickly. In fact, we get to chapter 14, and, and we see that, 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 that not only does Saul have a wife, but he also has a concubine. So he's beginning his collection. In fact, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, we discover that Saul had multiple wives. We don't know how many, but he had more than one. Deuteronomy told him not to have a collection of wives, but he was having a collection. And so as we read this story, we're reading the rise and fall of King Saul. And, and really, his rise and his fall is a, is a good reminder that it's good to start in the Spirit, but you know what? It's just as important to finish in the Spirit. We're reminded of, of Galatians 3.3 that says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, as one rendering, I think it's the Living Bible puts it, it says, Are you that stupid? Do you, do you think that, that you can finish in the flesh what was begun in the spirit? In fact, that might have been the Gordon Ramsay translation of the Bible. Uh, and so again, at the beginning of Saul's reign, we see that Samuel anoints him with oil. The reminder that he needs the Holy Spirit. Even as Zechariah 4.6 says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He needed the Holy Spirit. And yet, his fall reminds us, it serves as a perpetual reminder that each and every one of us, we all have a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Am I right? You know, Jesus said, the, the, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, Galatians 5.17, it says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Am I preaching to anybody else this morning? I mean, haven't we all been there? Things we want to do, we want to serve God, we want to glorify God, but we end up doing, you know, something else. We look at something we shouldn't look, we, 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 we get angry, we, we, this happens or that happens. We have this constant struggle between the spirit and the flesh. I told you before about this Cherokee Indian who became a Christian. And he was explaining to his grandson what it was like now being a Christian. He's like, you know, it's like I got two natures in me, an old nature and a new nature. He says, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like I have two dogs living inside me. He says, the old dog is, is, is mean and, and vicious. He's filled with anger and greed and, and, and lies and pride. But then there's the new dog, and the new dog is the one that has a heart for Christ. And, and, and he's filled with, with joy and with love and with peace and with patience and kindness. But these two dogs are constantly fighting each other inside of me. And the grandson asks and says, well, Grandpa, which dog wins? And he smiles and says, the one that wins is the one that I feed. In the same way, listen. 
We need to starve the flesh. That is, starve our, our sinful desires. Even as it says in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, pro, and make no provisions for the flesh to fill its lusts and desires. We need to starve the flesh. Not only do we need to starve the flesh, but listen, we also need to feed the spirit. Even as Job said in Job 23, 12, he said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We need to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. And so in the same way, Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had promised that as long as the king would read that passage, read those terms, read his word, it would prevent him from turning away. And so Saul's failure serves as a consummate reminder that really the key to finishing well, the key to to finishing in the spirit is to feed the spirit. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your your grace. We thank you that by someone else's failures, we can grow. Even as it's written in 1 Corinthians that that these were written as examples for us. So we pray that we can look at the life of someone that, that you raised up, but it was a failed life. And we can learn from the failure, and we can grow in you and grow in your wisdom. But Lord, each and every one of us, you have a you have a plan for us. And we, each and every one of us, we, we can thwart that plan by, by giving into the flesh rather than heeding the spirit. So as we battle the flesh, as there's this inner battle between the new and the old within us, we pray for less of us and more of you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.